0: In 2006, I transferred from Tiffin University to Cedarville University because I wanted to study student ministries. Cedarville was a Christian university and I was excited to grow in my relationship with the Lord. And so I remember stepping foot on campus, and two things were evident almost immediately the students' desire to love Jesus, and the students' desire to love Jesus somebody, hopefully, to become their spouse. It was very evident that people were there for their degree and their MRS degree. It was very evident that when you graduate Cedarville, you were only a success if you had two pieces of paper, a diploma and a marriage license. And I was like, wow, I better find a wife in the next two months, or two years, I should say, or I am a failure. Now, All the guys, I was in an upperclassman dorm, and all of them seemed to already have girlfriends or just got a girlfriend or was talking to a girl. And as they were getting to know their girlfriend, oftentimes the guy would say, all right, it's that day. It's time for a DTR. I'm like, what is a DTR? And they said, oh, you don't know what a DTR is? We're going to define the relationship. I said, What does that mean? I said, so here's what we do. You go off, whether it's somewhere on campus, maybe you go off to dinner, and we define where our relationship is headed. If it's not going well, we try to figure out how to fix it. If it is going well, then we have to take the next step. The next step was an engagement, but it was close. You know what that was? Making it Facebook official. I mean, when you make it Facebook official, you might as already go and book the reception hall. And this is what they were doing. And I was like, wow, this is kind of corny, but okay. Yes, I did have a DTR, by the way. Yes, it was very awkward. Yes, we made it Facebook official. And thank God I didn't marry her. (laughs) I like the girl I'm married to a lot, lot more. Please make sure you tell her that. Anyways. (laughs) What if I told you that in the book of Revelation, chapter two and three, Jesus is going to have a DTR conversation with the churches? What if he's gotten to the point where he said, it's time to define the relationship? You see, if you read chapter one, especially towards the end, in the second half of Revelation one, we find out that Jesus refers to the churches, these seven churches that John's writing to, As lampstands. They're lampstands because Jesus wants to use the church to shine a light into the darkness. And if they do it well, they will shine that light, but they have to get it right on the inside first so they can be effective for the world. And Jesus is going to have a DTR with them outlining what the relationship must be with Jesus in order to accomplish this purpose. And so when you read chapters 2 and 3, because we can't read the whole thing today, I really encourage you to read it. You're going to see a pattern that's pretty consistent across the seven churches. The pattern goes like this. Jesus is going to recognize what the churches are doing right and tell them to keep doing that. He's going to rebuke the churches for what they're doing wrong and tell them to knock it off. And then he's going to say, hey, the way you knock it off is by his grace. And his grace-based solution is what we'll call at the end the remedy. So let's look at one of these churches together. If you have your Bibles, turn to um, Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. He's writing to this church in Thyatira. Thyatira was not a prominent church, at least not compared to the other seven churches, but the message that Jesus gives to this church is the longest of all of the messages. And as he's writing to this church in Thyatira, here's what he says they're doing correctly. He says this, this is the message from the Son of God whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your uh, patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. I love that Jesus says, look, you're doing so many good things right. And even the things that you maybe don't have buttoned up quite yet, I see you're improving. You're trying your best. What are these things? Well, Jesus says to the church, you are doing a great job of loving one another. Not just saying that you love one another, but sacrificially laying your life down for a friend. Because that's what Jesus said he came to do. He came to love us to the point where he would give himself up for the betterment of somebody else. That's what he says. You're doing a good job of that. Keep it up. He says your faith is strong. Especially because what you're going through is hard. You know, it's easy to claim the name of Jesus when life's going really good, and it's really hard when it's not. And for these churches, they're suffering, they're being persecuted, many of them will end up being killed for their faith, but Jesus says, you are enduring, your faith is strong, keep it up. And then he says, your service, your service is strong the way you give of your finances, the way that you do the tasks in order to accomplish the mission of the church, you are doing those things. Keep it up. As Jesus defines the relationship with the church, he says, these are the things that I want you to keep doing. I was thinking about the chapel as I was writing this. I was thinking about people that came to mind that I think if if Jesus were here today, I think he would stand in front and say, hey, can I just encourage some of you what you're doing well? Like, there's some of you that just are kicking bottom and how you love. Like, there's so many people that say they love, but when the rubber meets the road, uh, they, they think more about themselves. But you just give, you lay your life down. Like, when people are around you, they think about me. Keep it up, I think Jesus would say. There's some of you that are pressing forward in your faith. It's not perfect, but faith is never perfect. But you're pressing forward in your faith. You are clinging to Christ when life is hard. You recognize the promise that says when we are at our weakest or vulnerable or when we're suffering or when we're struggling or when we're grieving, then Jesus is strong. You keep your eyes on me, Jesus says, I will keep you. Some of you have that faith, keep it up, Jesus would say. When it comes to service, whether it's financially, I saw you bring in your bottles. The greatest part is seeing your kids, like, wow, you are showing what generosity looks like to your own kids. It's amazing. When you give faithfully with your generosity or when you are giving of your time or your energy or you're just available, You know, oftentimes, when I'm with people, it's always checking the phone or checking the watch because they have to go to the next thing. But when you're just available and giving your time and making people comfortable in your presence, Jesus would say, thank you. Thank you for serving. And when you see the encouragement that Jesus gives to these seven churches, it's laden with love, faithfulness, kindness, service, all of the things that Jesus would say to us. Keep going. But he wouldn't be loving if that's all that he would say. Because just like a loving parent has to correct their kids so they don't go down a bad path, so too is Jesus going to do that. Because he knows if we continue to go down this other path potentially, then it could hurt us and most importantly hurt Jesus' witness to the world. And so he rebukes these churches. He says, look, you got this wrong and I need you to fix it. You see, it's his rebuke that can be an encouragement because he tells us in Revelation three nineteen, I correct and discipline the ones I love. So he says, you have a choice. What I'm about to tell you Be diligent and turn away from your indifference, or don't. That's up to you. He's not going to force you, but he's at least going to tell you where you and I maybe have fallen short. That's what a good dad does. I watched this video recently of this kid. He's probably seven or eight years old, and you could see on their like little ring video camera that captured this kid slams the door and he yells, "Dad, I'm moving out!" And the dad hears him and he says, "What do you mean you're moving out? Where are you going?" And the kid says, you don't love me anymore. The dad says, I don't love you anymore. All I told you was turn the PlayStation off and go to bed. (laughs) And this kid, he leaves, he's upset. He he leaves with his skateboard and his Minecraft sword. And his dad's like, okay, you're going to survive just with a skateboard and little sword? And what made me laugh is so often when when God corrects us, we oftentimes say, we're gone, we're moving out. Or he's just saying, I just want to help you. I love you enough to tell you the truth. And so I'm praying that whatever God has to say to us today, we don't just grab our things and leave mentally or in our hearts. But we say, Jesus, what do you have to say? Let me listen. For Jesus says this to the church in Ephesus, a church where it looked like they had everything going on the outside. Revelation 2, verses 4 through 5. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Sit in that. Think about this verse. Jesus says, on the outside you're doing fine. But your devotion to me, your love for me, it's not the same as it once was. Your love for people, it's different. What happened? He says, look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you repent, or if you don't repent, excuse me, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. The New American Standard Bible puts the first verse in a little bit more clear context hits a little harder i would say it says i have this against you you've left your first love when you think about your relationship with jesus when you think about how that should be shown in love to people jesus also reverses that your love for people will prove your love for Jesus. Is it as hot as it once was? Is it growing like it ought to be? Do you have the same fervor that you did when you gave your life to Christ, whether you were five or 50, than you do today? you don't remember anything I say I want you to be honest with yourself and ask yourself have I given up or left my first love when Jesus says this it reminds me of a couple who just man they clicked they were in that honeymoon phase they were in love but as life came about things got in the way And what started out as this white-hot love and passion for each other has turned into duty. And the love and passion has turned into apathy. Sure, on the outside, it looks fine. They come to church together. They parent together. They live together. Socialize together. Social media looks pretty good. But there's a gap. When Jesus addresses the church, he says, look, I was your everything. Everything. I was so important to you. I was your first love. Everything that you did was because of your devotion to me. And now that love has turned to duty. That passion has turned into apathy. Would Jesus say the same thing about you and me today? Are you and I growing in love with Jesus has something gotten in the way? Tim Keller calls it the Jesus and and relationship. Jesus and something else. Oftentimes, whatever that and is, it clouds our love for Jesus. I want Jesus and this. I need Jesus and this. Tim Keller says, whatever comes after that and is truly your first love. What are the things that subtly over time we went from wanting to tell everybody about Jesus, that our love was such a reflection of God that when people were with you, they said, I don't know Jesus, but if I were to meet him, it sure looks like you. What has happened that we've drifted away That when we read the Bible, it's now a textbook. When we stand in worship, we sing words, but we're somewhere else. When we pray, we're so distracted that we don't even hear from Jesus. People can't distinguish our love for them anymore. What's happened? This is the biggest problem in the church in America. It is forsaken Jesus and loving people, period. Oftentimes, it it comes in one of three things. I'm guilty of all three. You can determine that, but sometimes it's the duty of religion that gets in the way. Like, okay, Jesus loves me. This I know. The Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me because the cross. Jesus loves me because he gave his life for me. Now, everything comes after that. Now, I operate out of his love. He gives it in abundance. He gives me grace and mercy every day, and therefore I'm gonna live out of that. If you don't, then oftentimes it flips. I have to read my Bible so God's not mad at me. I better go to church so God blesses me. If I don't pray, then he certainly won't do something for me. That's religion. It's rules. It's obligations. It's doing something to earn Jesus' love, and instead of saying, Jesus, you love me, I just wanna live in relationship to you. If you have religion, you will lose the relationship. And over time, you're going to be like, I don't really care. Or sometimes it's the allure of culture. At first we say, Jesus, you satisfy my every need. And then over time we say, yeah, you do. But then I also. And Jesus, like you're good, but... I really want to define myself from from what I have and what I do and how I climb up the ladder of success or what I own or what's in the bank account. Other times we are so insecure because we're not secure in Jesus' love anymore that we are desperate to find it in other people. Some of us are so addicted to social media and have to post every day because we can't truly just sit in the fact that Jesus is so delighted in you and loves you that you don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to find approval in others. But when we drift, that line becomes so, so thin. Or the one that I'm probably most guilty about Probably my number one is the toxicity of selfishness. If you try to run your life and then you also want Jesus to run your life, at the end of the day, you're going to run your life. Jesus will never compete with your pride, He will never compete with your selfishness. That's why in the book of James, it says this He opposes the proud, which means he cannot be at work in the life of someone who is selfish and prideful. He is not there working in your life. But he gives grace to the humble, to those who are selfless, to those who call on Jesus, to those who know that Jesus is their first love. What's scary about this is at the end of these verses, Jesus says, if you don't return, if you don't make me the first priority in your life, if you don't make me the love of your life, then I'm going to remove the lampstand from your presence. Which literally means, If Jesus isn't our first love, then he says, you know what? I will render you ineffective in the world. Because how in the world are we supposed to be effective in the world if Jesus isn't our first love in this room? It can't happen. We can fake it, but we can't in the end be effective and fake God out. If we don't get this right, if Jesus isn't our true love, the world will never see that he's in love with them. Our devotion, our love for Jesus has been replaced with something else. What is that for you? Is Jesus speaking to you today? Or what about what he says to the church in Laodicea at the end of chapter 3? He says, look, I know all the things that you do that you're neither hot nor cold, I wish that you were just one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Well, you say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. What you don't realize is you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, many times when you hear this passage, it's someone saying your faith is lukewarm. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Because he says, I know the things that you do. So if he's talking to the church in Ephesus, he says, you've forsaken your love, your devotion, and out of that comes the things. He's saying this time, hey, you know what? I know you say you love me, but your lives don't reflect it. There's no fruit from the root. And so he says, look, you got to get it this right. Now, it may help you, at least it helped me, understanding where Laodicea is and what's up with the water thing. It's situated right between, you see, Colossae and Hierapolis, right there. And Colossae had a cold spring that they got cold water from. Hierapolis had a hot spring that they got hot water from, but because of where Laodicea is in between, they couldn't get access to either. And so when the water would finally come to them, it would cool down or warm up to the point where it was a combination of lukewarm water. Now, why does that matter? Why does Jesus say this about water? Well, here's what Ian Paul says in his commentary He says, hot water is good for something at least. It's good for healing and therapy. Cold water is good for something. It's good for cooling and refreshing. Lukewarm water is good for nothing. It would make the drinker want to spit it out. It was not the state of their faith that Jesus was criticizing, Paul says. It was the lack of fruit in their lives. What he's saying is, how can people know that you're a Christ follower? by seeing it in your life. And for Laodicea, they claimed faith, they had devotion, but there was no results. You see, if you and I know the Bible, we can memorize the Bible, we can have a PhD in the Bible, but we don't live out the Bible. If people don't see this in our everyday lives, if we claim to be a Christian, but people don't see that we're a Christian, Jesus says you're disgusting. Those aren't my words, those are his. So disgusting, he's like, you're useless. Let me ask you, if you call yourself a Christ follower, can the people in your lives see it? Like, if you're at work and you have Bible verses all over the place and people know you go to the chapel and you have Jesus bumper stickers and you're posting stuff on social media, by your love, by your humility, by your goodness, by your faithfulness, by your gentleness, do they see Jesus? Jesus. When people interact with you, do they walk away saying, that reminds me of Jesus, or if that is who Jesus is, I want nothing to do with him? Do you understand why Jesus must rebuke us? Because so often, either we get the devotion wrong, or we get the fruit part wrong. And Jesus is saying, look, we gotta get it both right. Fall in love with me. Make me your number one priority so that at the end of the day, you can produce fruit in such a way that people say, man, that person belongs to Jesus. And eventually I want to belong to him too. For James says, faith without works is useless and dead. They have to go together. What I love about Jesus that I'm not really great at always as a dad, is I rebuke my kids, but I never tell them how to change. Or I get upset with them, and then I leave. I don't show them grace. Thankfully, Jesus is way better than me. He doesn't just say, hey, this is the problem. He gives the solution. It's a solution that's so unexpected that it makes me fall in love with Jesus all over again. For he gives the remedy how to fix the problem. And I want to end in chapter three, going to what he says to the Laodicea church. He says, look, I stand at the door and I knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Jesus is saying that if we've pushed him out in any aspect of our life, if we have loved something or someone else more than Jesus and we've pushed him out, or we say we love Jesus but by our actions we've pushed him out. Jesus is saying you may push him out of the house but you can't get away from his presence. That he's been knocking on the door ever since. Some of you know that. Some of you know it because we've justified certain things or we've tried to ignore it or we try to to do something that we're like, God, that can't be you, but it's been Him the whole time. He has been pursuing you. He's been knocking and knocking, whether it's been one week for you, one month, one year, 50 years. He's been knocking the whole time. That's grace. Though we deny Him, He will never deny us. He's knocking at the door and He says, I want to come in. Not only do I want to come in, I want to go to the table. Because at the table is where friendships are formed. And he said, I want to be your friend. I want the spot at the table where we can talk and we can work things out. And I want to tell you about my love and my grace and my pursuit for you and why I've been knocking this whole time. Let's get this right together. So, as we end our time here, I don't want to just go on in our sunny, like, yeah, it was great and not invite Jesus back in. Because so many times we come to church every week and we're convicted, but by the we come on Monday, it's the same thing. We just repeat that cycle over and over again. It's time to break it today by allowing Jesus in and having a seat at the table. So for the next few moments, I just wanna walk through these three things with you and help you to talk to Jesus. So close your eyes and bow your head with me. What is Jesus saying to you today around the table that he's encouraged by? What is he sharing with you today that maybe it's your love or your service or your friendship or your kindness or your faith? What is it that Jesus is saying to you right now? Keep it up. Jesus at the table, not with a posture of judgment, but with a posture of grace leaning into you. Where have we forsaken him in our life? What is our first love? Where have we gone wrong? What happened to that passion that was there a long time ago? What has gotten in the way? Maybe it's our actions. As Jesus leans in around the table, he's saying, I I know you love me, but why don't you show it? What are you afraid of? What are you ashamed of? And Lord, as the chapel, I repent in the name of Jesus on behalf of our church for anything that we've gotten wrong. but Lord, I am so grateful that no matter what we've done to put you on the outside, you have been knocking this whole time and you knock every time. All we have to do is open the door. We open the door to your Lordship in our lives as individuals and as our life as a chapel. We pray in Jesus' name. Would you stand with me and let's close our time with repeating our benediction verse. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come. Have a great day.